there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome back to another episode of T4C. Oh, boy, my friends, are you in for a treat? Because my next guest checks just about every super interesting career track out there, especially if you're interested in the healthcare industry or in medicine or in business or innovation or, dare I say, all of the above. Oh, And she's been recognized as one of the top 30 chief innovation officers and one of the 25 most powerful women in health IT in the United States. But before I introduce you to Dr. Jean Wright, a board-certified pediatric anesthesiologist, among other medical qualifications, with her MBA, who is currently the chief innovation officer at the second largest public healthcare system in the United States, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's time for Coffee's weekly newsletter that comes out on Mondays and gives you an exclusive look inside the episodes and the professionals we're going to be featuring that week. And it will only take you a snap of the finger to do, just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time4coffee.org and the sign up box is right there. Now, my Java lovers, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated beverage because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my distinguished guest is Dr. Jean Wright, the Chief Innovation Officer for Atrium Health, formerly the Carolinas Healthcare System, which is the second largest public healthcare system in the United States. As Chief Innovation Officer, Dr. Wright is responsible for leading the advancement of innovation initiatives throughout Atrium Health, which includes 40 owned or managed hospitals, 60,000 employees, and 10 million patient contacts a year. Dr. Wright and her team's focus is on working with teams to raise the bar for patient care and population health through human-centered design, business development, and novel medical technologies. Dr. Wright has also practiced as a pediatric anesthesiologist and intensivist, which means she cared for seriously ill infants and children who needed a high level of monitoring care. She's held positions as a physician executive at Emory, chair of pediatrics for Mercer, and executive director for Memorial Health's Children's and Women's Hospital in Savannah, Georgia. And I promise you, my friends, I could spend the next 30 minutes just reading all of Dr. Wright's accomplishments and her experiences, but I want you to check out the show notes to see and really get the full picture of just what an incredibly accomplished woman she is. Dr. Wright, I want to welcome you to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to go? I am. I am. And no one would read that CV. It would put them to sleep in a heartbeat. But I guess being an anesthesiologist, that would be appropriate. (laughs) I'm guessing you've told that joke before. (laughs) I want to let you know it is such a delight to get to speak with you for so many reasons, not the least of which is that I've been hearing about you for years from my wonderful mother with whom you serve on the COPD, Chronic Obstructive Pulmonary Disease Board, and she just adores you. 
Well, feelings mutual. We are comrades in crimes, and we're sisters from another mother. I guess that rhymes better if you're brothers from another mother, but it's been a great journey, and she is kicking up some dust and making a difference in that field, as is your dad. Oh, well, listen, I I would love the opportunity to interview my mom one of these days, but I can't get her to slow down for me to get a microphone in front of her. So I want you to know just how excited I am. And another reason for that is that I understand that you are also a Java junkie. I am. I am. I'm a big time listener and I am caffeinated about 20 of the 24 hours of the day. (laughs) Okay. Well, let us start digging into what you do during those 20 hours. uh, I hope not all of them at work where you wear the hat of chief innovation officer for Atrium Health. What do you do? (laughs) You know, that's probably the most common question I get asked at a party. Um, So here's the short version or the elevator version. I I serve in a big healthcare system. So no one person or no one team can do all the innovation for a big system. But what we do is we do serve as catalysts or accelerators by either identifying opportunities. We use skills like human-centered design to go in and put ourselves in the patient's place and understand how they're interacting with the system. We may use tools like business model innovation because healthcare is rapidly changing from a pay for per click service to paying for an episode of care or a bundle of care. So paying by volume. So we do human centered design. We do business model innovation. We do strategic partnerships, whether it's, I call it two guys in a box of Chinese food who have their idea on a napkin all the way to, you know, huge companies who want to co-invent with us as a health system. And lastly, we have some inventors, some of our own physicians and leaders who have invented something and we help them get intellectual property. We help them make a prototype. We help them perhaps even mass produce it in China and then help them spin it out as a company. So I tell people I have the greatest job in the system. I probably would do it for free. I care that much about it. I love my team. They're high performing. They're inquisitive. They're always teaching themselves something. In fact, Not long ago, I came in riding a hoverboard. And as you know, I'm not the age of a millennial. I'm actually twice a millennial. I'm at that age now where somebody sends you a card and a free insurance plan. And I came into the department riding a hoverboard. Of course, they were all thinking I was going to have a hip fracture. But I wanted them to know I'm not dead yet and I can do what you guys do. So I have a great job. And then from those four skills of human-centered design, business model innovation, strategic partnerships and commercialization, we partner with our operational leaders. So perhaps head of neurology, looking at what we could do for the rising tsunami of patients with um, memory issues, Alzheimer's, that the number of patients that we're going to have with this is going to overwhelm any system easily within the next five to 10 years. And it's one of those silent epidemics that people don't realize until you have it in your own family and you realize the impact and the caregiver stress. So I may work with somebody like that. I may go over and work with supply chain about how we could look at medical devices. I might go talk to the pharmacy about how we might use genomics to help figure out the patients that would respond best to medication. So I'm usually going in and out of different departments, as is my team. And my team's multidisciplinary, different backgrounds. I have an artist. I have people with business development. I have IT. I have public health. I have a mechanical engineer. I have a 
storyteller. That's not his real job, but that he's the one that hosts our podcast. And it takes all of us to bring innovation into our big system. Oh, that is so helpful. Thank you for that. You mentioned your fabulous team. You and your team members refer to yourselves as Sherpas. Why (laughs) is that? Well, you can imagine it's not because of the mountains that are in Charlotte. I mean, Charlotte is almost as flat as Ohio, but it's because that that word seems to have such a powerful image of generally a tawny Tibetan who's helping an explorer scale Everest and knows exactly where to step, which crevices to avoid, which ladders to use, when to use the oxygen, when to use the ropes. When we go partner say, alongside the chief of orthopedic surgery or neurology or behavioral health. None of us is an expert in that clinical domain. But we will say, I don't know psychiatry, but what I do know are some skill sets around discovery that we call human-centered design. Let's try that. I know how to create a pilot. In fact, when we first were inventing or innovating virtual behavioral health, this now goes back about seven, eight years ago, we acted it out first. We said, let's pretend we're in a primary care clinic and what would this look like? And then I could still see the people couldn't get there mentally. They could not move from how we do things today to a future state. So I said, okay, clean slate. Let's pretend we're actually designing this for Tibet. And so we you know, play Tibetan music and put some signs up and said, this is constrained thinking. And we made them design it for Tibet. And then we loosened up. All that to say, Sherpa is a really well-embraced idea in our organization. And I think as a result, no one's ego gets trampled on. No one gets threatened by us. Everyone knows we're not going to run it over the long haul. So they're not threatened that we're going to take over some division. And I think it helps us keep focused on being wise, but humble. And I think we have to bring both things um, to the table to be um, well deployed in our system. How do you separate the bright, shiny object from something that's going to bring about major change? And can you give us an example of something that you've been able to do at Atrium that has brought about significant change? I think that's a great question because most of the time when people first hear the word innovation, they think cool, or if they hear innovation department, they think post-it notes and, you know, kind of funky eyeglasses or something like that. We realized we didn't really understand how to do that. And so we partnered ourselves with Professor Clay Christensen from Harvard Business School. I took two of my team and I sent them up there and put them through a week-long training so we could really understand disruptive innovation. And boy, they, they drink Kool-Aid. In fact, they came back almost evangelistically, first to our department and then across the organization. In fact, I'll fast forward. I think they've now trained about 400 of our most senior leaders in how to recognize the difference, how to scan. You know, Let's say you're running a rehab department. What are the businesses that are out there that are likely not to head on compete with you? Because those are the ones we can usually spot. But who are the ones that are going to disrupt you? And nowadays, with so much being virtual and being over the phone, there's a lot of different technologies you could think about. But what we found, and this is certainly what Christensen's research shows, is it's not the bright, shiny object. It's not even the technology. It's the change in business model that disrupts. So the common example always is Blockbuster to Netflix. I'm old enough. I still have a Blockbuster card in my wallet. I just do not. 
I do. I bring it out like for historical value every now and then. Yeah. And to explain to the millennials what it is and also to explain what a rotary phone is to them. But I remember going there and renting one of those VHSs and then I get a late fee and it really ticked me off. In fact, I think I paid for Top Gun probably $35 worth or something from the late fees. Fast forward, Netflix came along and they started mailing discs to our home. Well, that was cool. But what was different is they were charging us per month. And then the thing I like about this example is then they reinvented themselves and they went to streaming. And now they've gone to content creation. And they're one of the companies that is not afraid to cannibalize today's business because we think that's at the heart of it. Either you're going to cannibalize yourself and move to these new platforms or somebody else is going to do it to you. So let's bring that to healthcare. Where does that come in? Today, there's probably a couple of hundred different kinds of primary care clinics that are being opened around the country. They are backed by venture capital money. They're usually warm and friendly. They really apply to either the worried well or healthy millennials. They're frictionless in terms of the, the engagement that you have with the staff. People love them. And they're now being frequently sold to employer groups. Well, what does that do to a big system? You mentioned we have 40 hospitals. We have 900 care locations. We have a couple of thousand doctors that we employ. What if these entrants come into our market? It won't be that they're different or better doctors. It'll be because the employer contracted with them or they did a subscription model. Probably more detail than anybody listening would want to know. But we know that those same principles of the business model changing is what's going to disrupt us. So that's how we separate it. We make sure it's not just cool and shiny. We also make sure that it's spreadable, that it can be adopted across 40-some hospitals. So it can't be a one-off. It can't be something that just works in Hira. It's got to work all across our domains. Mm. Oh, my goodness. That is a challenge. For our young listeners, Dr. Wright, who may be intrigued by the possibility of entering healthcare, but they're wondering what the most interesting entry point would be, what do you think that is? And do you think there are certain skill sets that they should think about, especially for those who are still in college, that they should think about honing before they graduate? Wow, those are some great, great questions. I think the answer that I might give today may almost be outdated in another couple of years. But, you know, as you and I have talked before, people in my generation, we majored in biology, chemistry, not much else, and went to med school. And then for four years, we learned what everybody else had done. We had the creativity beaten out of us. And then, you know, we were plopped out as an intern or resident and then did more repetitious learning and never had a chance to question and say, could we do this better? Or what other skills or what other industries do something like this that I could build an analogy and bring it into what I do? So I don't know that there's any one track for folks today. I think you could go to medical school or you could get into healthcare innovation by pharmacy, medical engineering or biomedical engineering. Genomics is exploding I sat down one night and tried to teach genomics to my 13-year-old, and I thought, we pretend like genomics is really hard. I mean, how hard can it be? It's only four letters, right? 
And <laughs> I sat down and explained it to her and explained GWAS and mRNA. And we got pretty deep into the topic. And it's not because, you know, she's all that bright or what have you. It's because it's really an easy to understand feel, but it's not become mainstream yet into how folks think about things. So it could be that a person with a passion for public policy could come in and say, I really want to do something around women's health and human trafficking. One of our ER physicians has recently made a really impactful innovation and approach here in our system around human trafficking. So there's a variety of ways. You know, my advice would be keep your mind open. You know, you're it's going to be closed in so many ways because all the rote stuff you have to memorize. But keep your mind open and keep watching for those trends. Like you can hardly look at anything today that it doesn't say AI, artificial intelligence, where you can imagine that's going to be in healthcare at the point of care very, very soon. Right now, it's still more like paper and pencil models or models that are in a lab. But even our team are, are working on models as a a clinician's making a decision, they could get the same kind of feedback you get from your GPS when it says traffic ahead or cop ahead or big red line because the traffic's delayed. That's how physicians and clinicians will want to make decisions with real-time, just-in-time analytics. I'm beginning to preach, so I probably should stop. Oh my goodness. I'm <laughs> here. I'm I'm ready to listen to the sermon. Let me tell you. <laughs> And I also want to let our young listeners know in the Espresso Shots interview that I've already done with Dr. Wright, you will hear her say, if there were one thing you should come into this field with, it would definitely be data analytics under your belt. It's something if you're still in college, you can try to take a class. If you're not, and maybe your school doesn't offer it, you can check out any of these online platforms. The one that I've heard about the most is General Assembly, but I know that there are many others. Dr. Wright, let's flashback to when you were in college. You went to the University of Michigan, where you got your BS in biology. Did you know what you were going to do with that degree when you graduated? I wanted to go to med school since sixth grade. It's the only thing I ever wanted to do. And it's interesting because I'm the first in my family to go to college. And it's not like I had a parent or an uncle that was in healthcare. So it was really a, a big leap for me. When I went through, only 5% of my medical class was female. I was asked during my interviews, when would I have a family and how would I juggle a family around a career? So I come from a very different era. In fact, I was talking to a young female surgeon the other day and I said, I, I really would have loved to have done what you did with your career. But in my time, women couldn't go into surgery. They just didn't, you know, they almost never got into a surgical residency. And now all that has, has changed so much. So for me, I knew I wanted to go to med school. I had no idea that it would be a gateway to so many other careers. I mean, you mentioned, you know, I've been able to do federal testimony um, in the, the House and the Senate based on research out of our labs. I've been involved in um, creating a patent myself and in designing a medical device. I've been involved in creating mental health services that now screen 100,000 patients a year and get them into services um, that before would have been unobtainable. We're now involved giving pregnant moms monitors to take home uh, so that they don't have to come to so many prenatal visits, especially if everything's going well. And we've been so pleased to see that it's been well received. And especially in our indigent care clinics, 
where it's a real hassle for many of these women to get off their job, take public transportation. And so at times we in healthcare can be judgy and say, oh, they don't have as much care about their pregnancy or they're not as committed to good outcomes. Not necessarily so. They just can't get there. And it's a matter of access. And we've been able to show that we've decreased the no-show rate because now they only come for the visits they really, really need to come. Um, I looked at ceiling tiles that help preserve the energy because besides having all these different buildings, we have a really high electric bill, right? And so if we can save energy, there's a, a myriad of things that when I went to med school, I really thought I would take care of sick children and take care of them in an intensive care unit. And that would be it. And little did I know that would just be the beginning. Well, and one addendum to the story is that Today, you're the mom of four children who you're raising on your own on top of this monster job. So, so there to those male chauvinist pigs who thought you wouldn't be able to handle being a surgeon. What did they know? Yeah, well, um, before I go on a rant on that, I will say, especially to the women listening, I often tell young women in this field, we, we can have it all, but sometimes we can't have it all at the same time. And because of juggling childhood years and each of my kids has had some medical or surgical need, having to juggle around them sometimes means certain things aren't available. But I've been blessed and I've been able to adopt four awesome kids from China who keep me on my toes and keep me cool and teach me things like hoverboard and that sort of thing. <laughs> <laughs> and this generation that's coming up, they have so many more opportunities. I, I'm passionate about girls learning STEM, but girls also have to see that it's cool and it's something that they can do and that there's a future for them in that. And we all know without role models, without being able to set your sights on somebody a little farther down the path, it's often hard to keep that self-inspiration going. Mm. Well, hopefully our young female listeners will find inspiration in your story. So two final quick time for coffee questions for you. If you could share a time in your professional life when you really struggled, maybe you failed, maybe you face planted. The important thing is how you got back up and persevered and maybe a lesson you learned in the process. I think of a time where I had moved to Savannah and I was head of the Women's and Children's Hospital and it was a dream job for me. It was a dream community. I adopted my kids into that community. It had always been in the red. And by the end of the, like the end of the first quarter, I had it in the black and we were fundraising and growing. And then it was part of a bigger organization and the leadership of the bigger organization allowed the whole system to get into financial trouble. And I looked around and I was in my mid fifties at that point and I thought, whoa, I'm a single parent. At that point I had three kids struck me that they were all going to go to college. And so I needed to make bank for that. And almost like a little kid, I think I was, you know, probably a few seconds short of a temper tantrum one day at my home because I thought this is a place I wanted to stay. I put my roots down and a big part of children's hospital work is fundraising. And I built a really good relationship with the donors in that community. And now it looked like I was going to have to completely uproot. And I did. And I came up here to what was then Carolina's healthcare system. I went into an adult hospital or a hospital more focused more on adult care. And I learned, you know, adult care and that, but it wasn't my passion because I really like pediatric care. And there were days in that first year that I really doubted I'd made the right decision. And 
One of my kids came to me one day and said, I overheard you one day talking to somebody. Did you make the wrong decision coming here? And I said, I, I, you know, I didn't mean for you to hear it, but I don't know. I said, it seems like in the past where mommy's been, there's been like magic that happened. You know, we turned to the black, we got donors, we, you know, built these new things. And I said, you know, I, I'm not seeing the magic happen. And I'm just, I'm not sure. And within a few weeks after that, some leaders in the community had gotten together and they felt like this was the right community to apply for this multi-million dollar grant on health informatics and pop health. And they said, but we need somebody that's a card carrying academic that knows their way through HHS and NIH. Would you be the PI of this $16 million grant? Well, all of a sudden the, the woe is me's over the previous 12 months faded because here was this terrific opportunity just like dropped in my lap and it became really a game changer for me. I mean, <laughs> I laugh when you do the intro about the 25, you know, what is it, uh, women in uh, yeah. health IT. That's because there's probably only 26 of us. <laughs> the field is not very robust yet with, with women. But I was able to be one of those early thought leaders in that space and make a difference and begin to build. And, and ever since then, you know, I've stayed funded in this area of, of analytics. So what I thought was a downturn and what I thought was negative ended up being probably one of the biggest boosts, you know, for my career and one of my best opportunities. Oh. Thank you so much for sharing that story, Dr. Wright. I have this very quick final question, and that is, if you could go back to Michigan and do it all over again, but based on the wisdom you have now, what advice would you give yourself? I think there's two or three key courses I missed. And I came from a poor family, and so I was trying to get through school as quickly as possible. So I graduated in three years. So I either took the AP test or whatever to just get in and out as quickly and cheaply as I could. I wish I had taken more or something about public health. I don't even know what we would have called it back then. But so much of healthcare is funded by Medicare and Medicaid. And understanding how that works is really critical to understanding healthcare systems. I obviously wish I had taken analytics. You know, later in life, I was self-taught. In fact, when I went to business school, it was the first time I took a formal course in innovation and a formal course in analytics. I probably wish I had taken psychology. I think I probably learned it more from my family indirectly. But working with people, I mean, you've heard me talk about being a Sherpa. You know, we cast ourselves a certain way to be more effective. And I don't mean that to be cheesy or disingenuous, but we do want to be effective. We don't want to be just right. And the more I've come to understand people and what makes them tick and how they make decisions and how to build high-performing teams, I think that's you know, been a huge element in my personal story and any successes that may have followed me. Atrium Health's podcast is called A Sherpa's Guide to Innovation. There is also a guidebook that Dr. Wright's team created called The Innovation Engine Guide to Design Thinking Sessions. It's available on Amazon. We'll have links to both in show notes. Dr. Wright, thank you so much for making the time to share your experiences, your wisdom with me and the Time for Coffee community. Atrium Health and all of your colleagues are so lucky to have a leader like you at the helm. Well, thank you so much. I hope we uh, stir the hearts of a lot of innovators to come. 
Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.